read now. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was standing there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that just had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We remember that all scripture is breathed out and profitable for us, even the parts of your word that may be a bit hard to understand. God, grant us grace this morning that we would hear, that we would see, that we would believe deeply in Jesus Christ, our great and ruling and reigning king. The truth is, Lord, some of us may wonder what we're doing here this morning. And perhaps others just would rather not be here. So, Father, speak. Soften our hard hearts. Help us to pay attention, to really listen, so that your word, this word from Mark chapter 5, would land softly on our hearts this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, based on my careful, meticulous study of this text here in Mark chapter 5, I have really only two words for you this morning. How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. That's actually a hit song from 1995. Some of you may remember that. It was 
from a band that you'll never hear again, a one-hit wonder, and the chorus just kept repeating, how bizarre, how bizarre, how bizarre, how bizarre. And that's basically the only thing I've been thinking about this week. How bizarre, how bizarre, how bizarre, and I'm, I'm kind of done with that, so I'm going to encourage you now to think about how bizarre this story really is. I mean, if you thought last week's story was great at the end of Mark chapter 4, well, hold on to your hats, folks, because this is even more great, if you will. Is there any more bizarre story that we read about in our Bibles? I don't know that there is. I mean, this scene here in Mark chapter 5 is as bizarre as it is dark, very dark, spiritually, in fact. It involves a very troubled man, demons, evil spirits, some very interested onlookers. Yes, Jesus is there, and by the way, there's 2,000 pigs who meet an unfortunate demise. It's not exactly a children's bedtime story, is it? Far from it. Now, we shouldn't be surprised whenever you're dealing with evil spirits and demons, the story's going to get very dark and very bizarre very quickly. And given that much of this story revolves around the presence of demons, I think one of the more challenging things for us, us sophisticated people as we are, is, is to approach this text with as little prejudice and preconceived notions as possible. So you might have just heard me read that text and you think, you know what, I actually, I don't really want to think too much about demons and evil spirits and all that is dark and sinister in this world, but since I can't really leave and I'm going to stay, I will listen, but I'm really hoping that this story has a happy ending. Well, it actually does. So it's good news for you, at least for one guy, the pigs still die. But at least for this guy, there, there is a happy ending, so hang in there. Maybe you heard this and you think, you know, I know evil is real. I know demons exist. Pigs careening off a cliff, that's not really cool. But I'm actually here this morning with some, some pretty big burdens of my own. I'm actually far more concerned about that meeting this week at work and what's going to happen. I'd like to just finish school strong. That's what I'm mostly focused on. I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that conflict in my family, or every time I start my car, there are weird noises coming from the engine. If there's a demon in there, that'd be good. Tell me about it and what I do. Believe it or not, and I hope that you do believe me, on the basis of God's word this morning, there is actually something in this text for, for every one of us here this morning. So I, in one sense, I, I want you to try and hear this story as if it was maybe just for the very first time. And in doing that, I want you to be able to see a picture of Jesus, because that's what we need most. We need a picture of Jesus. We need to see Jesus, the true king. And what we're going to see here, brothers and sisters, is that there is a Jesus that, is, that we find in our text here, this Jesus who is not afraid of the dark. He's not afraid of spiritually dark places. He's not afraid of spiritually dark people. He's certainly not afraid of spiritually dark enemies. Jesus is actually not afraid of any spiritual darkness that he sees in the world. In fact, he invades that spiritual darkness and brings to this, in many ways, spiritually dark and evil world light. His light, the light of the glory and grace of God himself. 
Now Mark has already shown us here in the first four chapters of his gospel, we've already seen several snapshots of Jesus, how Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to heal diseases. Jesus has authority to know what people are thinking before they even say it. He has authority, as we looked last week, to, to calm a raging sea and to do that with just one word. So you, you can't really honestly engage with, with Mark and with his gospel here and, and just look at these stories and think, well, no big deal. It doesn't really matter. General indifference. You can't possibly read this bizarre account in Mark chapter 5 and leave thinking, well, no big deal. doesn't really make a difference. It actually is a big deal. Notice this story here begins, well, it begins with a very miserable man. Verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now Jesus and his disciples are now on the other side of the sea. They're in the country of the Gerasenes, there's some debate about exactly where they were, how far north were they on that side. That's maybe for another time and place. The point that Mark wants to make sure we get is that they are now in Gentile territory. This is Gentile country. This is a place where Jews did not go. And so stretching along this coast, well, there were ten main Gentile cities. It was called the Decapolis. And Mark tells us in verse 2, that as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat, well, something peculiar happened. A man from the tombs rushes out to him. Now Luke, in his gospel, this is Luke chapter 8, verse 27, he, he records it as this. This man had demons, and for a long time he had worn no clothes. So Jesus steps out of the boat and he's immediately accosted by this naked, screaming, deranged, troubled man. Now if you're looking to start a ministry to the Gentiles, I think this man would be about the last person on earth that you would consider doing that with. And truthfully, if, if anything close to how Mark describes this man here walked through our doors at GCF here, we would all be shocked. And we would all be alarmed and we would all be looking around at each other saying, somebody should do something about that. Not it. Mark gives us a very frank picture here of this demoniac that is grotesque and heart-wrenching at the same time. I mean, as bizarre as the details are, we're dealing with a real human being here. This is not a scene from a horror show. This man's life was dominated by an evil, as we read here, an unclean spirit. And later on in our text, this is verses 16 through 18, or 16 and 18, we read of, of him being demon-possessed. The, the more literal translation there is that he was demonized. He was demonized. He was under the controlling influence of one or more demons. So he was the pawn of evil powers. Therefore, he was uncontrollable. He could not control himself and others could not control this man either, which is why we read in verses 3 and 4 that he lived where? He lived among the tombs. 
Because other people saw how bizarre this man really was and they tried to restrain him. They tried to lock him up with chains and shackles. But that didn't even work. This demonized man showed superhuman strength. It's actually the strength of the devil. And he would break free of these chains so that no one could bind him anymore. No one could keep him under control. And according to verse 4, there was no one stronger than him. What did this man do? What was a, a day in the life of this demonized man? Mark tells us, verse 5. This man spent his days and nights crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, how utterly sad and awful and horrific. This kind of self-destructive behavior is, is often associated with demons and the demonic and that's what is happening here. I mean, this man is as good as dead. He's living in the land of the dead. He's completely and totally cut off from any other human interaction. I mean, do you think, if you're real honest, and let's be honest, we are in church after all, I mean, do you think you would go anywhere near this man? I mean, people would question you if, if you're in your right mind, if you would go anywhere near this wild, screaming man who looked more like a mass of bleeding infections, scabs, and lacerations, and who was clearly not in his right mind. One commentator describes this man as one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. So we're dealing with a man here who's, well, his condition seems absolutely incurable, He's profoundly miserable, and he's without any hope at all for any bit of change. He could not look ahead to next week and think, well, maybe I'll get a break. He couldn't look ahead to next month and say, well, I've got some family or friends coming into town. I'll just hold on until then. There was none of that for this man. And so this whole first scene in these first couple of verses, brothers and sisters, it's, it's equal parts bizarre, sad, Twisted, hopeless, and frankly, just spiritually dark. And that's, that's one of the reasons that you know that, that you're dealing here with demons and evil spirits. None of it makes sense, and it gets dark very, very quickly. You've already heard this morning, I don't need to remind you that our world today can be a very dark place, spiritually dark place. That tragedy in Texas, that's horrific. And, and underneath it all, well, that has Satan's fingerprints all over it. And so I wonder, I mean, what, what feels like a dark place to you? And where do you look at, you point to and say, you know what, right there, that's a, that's a really dark place. R right there, for, for these reasons, that's, that's a really dark place. Maybe you, maybe you think about that as you, you think about Congress or Washington, D.C. I mean, it's just full of division and ego and competition and rivalry. That seems to be a dark place. Does anything good come out of Washington, D.C.? Maybe you look at Hollywood, the entertainment industry. That's, that's a dark place. We could ask the same question there. Does, does anything good come out of Hollywood? Maybe it's the inner city. It's the ghetto. It's poverty. Generational poverty. That's a dark, dark place. Or, or perhaps it's the other extreme. It's the lavish lifestyles of, 
the rich and the famous, the celebrity who seem to have all kinds of money, but they don't really seem to care. Maybe, maybe that's actually a dark place. Wherever you see and experience this sort of spiritual darkness, it ought to remind us, brothers and sisters, of our desperate need for spiritual light. I mean, it tells us, it reminds us that we're actually not doing okay on our own. That we need to be rescued. And we need to be rescued from ourselves. So who's going to do that? Who's going to rescue you from yourself? Perhaps you're here this morning and with humility, you might say, you know what, the, the darkest place I know is actually my own heart. At least the way that I've been living this last week. My heart is pretty dark, spiritually dark this morning. Well, you don't need to be demonized or living like a wild animal to know the kind of misery and hopelessness that comes when, well, when you're walking in this kind of spiritual darkness. Life can get dark, spiritually dark really fast. And every one of us here this morning, every last one of us here this morning has at least one situation or circumstance in our life that we think is hopeless. That we don't expect the Lord to do anything. That maybe we've prayed about and he hasn't done anything up to this point. Troubled marriage. It's a dead end job. It's chronic pain. Whatever it may be. Here's the point. Whatever situation in your life this morning that you think is so dark and impossible for any light to shine. Mark chapter 5 simply wants you to know that in fact there is hope. There is hope. Mark chapter 5 wants you to know that Jesus is bigger, that he is brighter, that he is stronger, that he is better, and that Jesus can actually triumph in the darkest of places, especially and even if that very dark and twisted place is your own heart. Because when you really meet Jesus, when you really see Jesus, when you encounter the power of Jesus... And you know then that Jesus is not afraid to enter and to invade spiritually dark places and change spiritually dark people and transform spiritually dark hearts as your heart and mine might be. That was in fact his whole ministry on this earth. Jesus did not come for people with good, clean hearts, did he? He couldn't find any. He came for people like us. Can you believe that Jesus could actually do that work in your heart this morning? That the light of Christ could shine a little bit brighter and that that would actually be a gift from God to you. Now for this demoniac, this severely troubled man left for dead, living among the dead, something happened that would turn his life completely around and reverse the course of his despair. He didn't read a book. He didn't go to a seminar. Nothing wrong with reading a book. Nothing wrong with going to a good seminar. This miserable man met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he encountered a power greater than his own. Verses 6 through 10, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
So this demoniac meets Jesus. He falls on his knees and he screams out in anguish. Literally, it's, there's a tormented howling. So it'd be the kind of blood-curdling scream that you would just not want to hear. And if you did hear it, you would think that is, there's a problem. We're going to need to do something about that. So this, this was not, here I am to worship you, Jesus. This was much more, Jesus, I know who you are. So the demon's saying, I, I recognize you, Jesus. I know that you are Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And so in yet another bizarre twist in this story... The demons actually recognize who Jesus is. And it's the disciples who are still not sure. So the demons' confession here is, is really far superior to the disciples' understanding at this point in their journey. Only people who seem, the only people who seem to know who Jesus really is are those with an unclean evil spirit or those with a demon. How bizarre is that? I mean, the disciples at the end of chapter 4 are saying, who is this? Who is this that can speak a word and calm and the seas obey him? And the demon here in chapter 5 is saying, oh, that's Jesus. That's the son of God. And by the way, Jesus, please don't torment us. And so that idiom here is, Jesus, please leave us alone. Why are you interfering? Jesus, please stay out. Keep away from us. I mean, even the demons know who they're dealing with. They know they are no match for Jesus and for his power. And you notice I said demons, not just one, as if, I mean, one demon would be enough. But this man is filled with innumerable demons. Jesus asks him his name, and he, he replies, legion, for we are many. That's actually a very chilling admission. A Roman legion was composed of 6,000 soldiers, so it's probably safe to assume that this man was filled with Thousands of demons who were all working together for evil. And so up to this point, these soldiers of Satan, thousands of them, they have had their way with this man. They've had their way with his mind, with his will, with his emotions, every part of him, with his very heart. So where's a, where's a troubled man like that? A, a demonized man who, who just wants to die. Where's a guy like that going to find hope? He's not going to change his life, is he? He can't. This man's only hope was in a liberator with power and authority greater than his own and greater than the demons who inhabited him. And so Jesus here is about, well, he's about to do battle with these demons. And, and he's about to do it on their turf. This would be enemy territory, if you will. Remember, Jesus is in Gentile country here. He's surrounded by Gentiles. He's surrounded by thousands of demons and evil spirits. He's dealing with a suicidal man. There's a filthy tomb and, as we're about to find out, a bunch of unclean pigs. This is about as far away from the tranquility of the Jewish tabernacle as you could get. Yet here we find Jesus. He's clearly not afraid. To go where others would not want to go. Any of us. And the demons know this. And they also know they're, they're no match for Jesus. And so they try to negotiate with him. Don't send us away to a foreign land. We got a better idea. Jesus, send us. Send us to those pigs. Verse 13. Now in case you're wondering, okay, 
as bizarre as it's about to get even more bizarre. But who's really in charge? I mean, are the demons in charge? Is Jesus in charge? Who's really in charge here? Well, it's Jesus. Notice, Jesus gives them permission. So the demons have to ask Jesus. The demons have to answer to Jesus. They must listen to Jesus. Jesus has authority. Yes, over all nature. Jesus has power over these demons. Jesus says, come out, and what happens? Well, the unclean spirits obey him. And so just as we saw last week, Jesus speaks a word, and the raging sea and the winds stop, just like that, one word. Here Jesus speaks a word, and what happens? The demons obey him. Jesus doesn't need to circle back. He doesn't need some elaborate incantation like many of the first century witch doctors did. I mean, they had, they, had, they had elaborate pages of what you would need to do and the words that you would need to speak. It would go on and on. It was just a bunch of words. Jesus doesn't need an army to back him up. Jesus doesn't even hold a sword in his hand. His weapon is his word. He speaks. The demons shudder in fear. Well, who is this Jesus? He has power to command Even the demons, that's why Martin Luther once said, even the devil, even the devil is God's devil. And indeed he is. So we have a miserable man who meets Jesus. Jesus speaks a word. And in case you didn't think anything was bizarre up to this point, it's about to get a whole lot more bizarre, capital B. The only thing more bizarre than seeing and hearing 2,000 pigs squealing and shrieking their, shrieking their way to death right over a cliff is to see and hear those same 2,000 demonized pigs squealing and shrieking their way to death right over a cliff. Jesus sent the demons from this man into this herd of pigs and every last one of them ran over the cliff into the sea and they drowned. I don't even know if we want to think about what that sounded like. I mean, Jesus saved the man and sacrificed the pigs, which that's that's a lot of bacon at the bottom of the sea, which kind of pains me, actually. But according to Jesus, the life of this man was worth far more, far more than 2,000 pigs. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, your life, whatever struggles, whatever challenges, and I know you have them as I do, your life is worth far more than you probably think, at least according to Jesus. So what's the, what's the picture, what's the image here of Jesus that Mark is wanting us to really understand? Well, to be sure, this, this is not a weak Jesus that we're dealing with here. This Jesus has power over demons. This Jesus has authority over people. In fact, just one word and he can command Satan's troop. Now that's really good news for every last one of us. Because one thing we don't need is a weak savior. We're weak. We need a strong savior. We need a strong savior who will rescue us when we wander away. Who will forgive us of our sins when we have prayed that same prayer perhaps thousands upon thousands of times. And what we have in Jesus here 
is a strong savior, mighty to save. Even on the cross as Jesus hung, dying in apparent weakness, when, when others mocked him and said, you can't even save yourself, Jesus. Come on down from that cross. What kind of savior are you? What was Jesus up to? Even in that moment of apparent failure and weakness, Jesus was rescuing us from the death that we deserve for our sins. His death, in fact, set us free. We were the ones chained in shackles because of our sins. We had a sentence of death. And on the cross, Jesus loosed the chains. He removed the shackles. And in his glorious resurrection, he dealt a death blow to Satan and to every demon, and to our own sin. This Jesus has power. Nobody else has. Satan doesn't have that. He has power over darkness, power over sin. This Jesus, then, that we read about here in Mark chapter 5, has also the necessary power to work in your life, to change you, to redeem your heart. And so the question this morning is, do you actually believe that? I mean, do you actually believe that? That the Jesus that we meet here, the Jesus with power over demons, also has sufficient power to work in your heart, to actually transform you. Do you actually believe that? A lot of days, I, a lot of days, one of my first prayers, Lord, help my unbelief, because I'm not sure I do because I'm really struggling to believe that. And perhaps that's where you're at this morning. It's a very simple prayer, but it's a prayer that God actually answers. Lord, help my unbelief. I mean, do you really believe that Jesus has power to forgive all of your sins, including the ones this morning, and the ones that you'll commit two hours from now? All of them, nailed to the cross. Do you actually believe that Jesus has power to soothe your anxious heart? to calm your soul. I mean, do you actually really believe, church, do we believe that Jesus has that kind of power to change us, to change our hearts? He can change you, he can change your spouse, he can change your children. There have been several bizarre and downright frightening details in this story. The only thing more frightening, I think, then seeing a demonized man who is out of his mind is seeing that same man now in his right mind and the man who delivered him from his demons is standing right next to him. Verse 15. That's what happened here. I mean, what an incredible testimony this guy has. This is his salvation story. And some of you have, have a really powerful, incredible testimony. I'll say that in just a minute. Everyone if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every one of us has an incredible testimony. But this is kind of unique, isn't it? I mean, if this guy was wanting to join GCF here, we'd go through a, he went through the membership class, I'd sit down with him as I've sat down with many of you, and I would say something like, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit of, of your story. Tell me a little bit of how you met Jesus. And he'd say, well, let's see, where to begin? I was out of my mind. 6,000 demons were in me. I walked around naked in tombs, spent my days bashing my head against the rocks, hoping that I would die. Then I met Jesus, he saved me, and now I can't stop talking about him. And I'd probably say, 
you know, the elders are going to have to vote on you. <laughs> so don't call us, we'll call you. I mean, it's bizarre, but it is breathtakingly beautiful. Talk about a transformation. Talk about a before and after story. I mean, sometimes it is the case that in the darkest of places and people, the light of Christ shines the brightest. And so when Jesus gets involved, when he really gets involved and you meet Jesus, well, he will change your heart as well. You too will have a before and after story. In fact, if you're a believer here, I just mentioned that, you do. As a Christian, you have a before and after picture of your life. And it may not be anything nearly as dramatic here as, as this demoniac, but it is no less miraculous. It is no less a work of sovereign grace to you. Anytime Jesus rescues a sinner from their sins, anytime Jesus moves upon a human heart and brings salvation is, in fact, a time for celebration. It's a time for great rejoicing. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have a before Jesus story, but you're, you, don't, you know you don't have that after story yet. Well, today would be a great day to allow God to begin writing that story in your life. Turn to him. Repent of your sins. Not everybody's excited, as we see, about this great transformation and this great change in this man. Some in the town who knew this man before he met Jesus are, are now deathly afraid of him. They now see him clothed. They see him in his right mind. They see him speaking intelligently, and they don't know what to do. It would be weird, wouldn't it? So they're afraid. Others in this town, if they're not deathly afraid of this man, they are they're angry. They're angry at him, and they're angry at Jesus. They blame both of them for the 2,000 pigs that are at the bottom of the sea. That was their livelihood. That was their business. Jesus is not good for business. And so they say in verse 17, please leave this region. Please leave this area. Please leave our country. Haven't you done enough, Jesus? We really don't want anything more to do with you. And yet again, it appears that in order to truly recognize Jesus for who he is, you need to have a demon. Or you need to have an unclean spirit. Or eyes to see. Enough humility to be able to recognize Jesus for who he really is. And so this left for dead, demonized man, now having been radically transformed because he met Jesus, he begs Jesus to stay, which I think that's what we would do as well, wouldn't we? Mark records it as that he might be with him. Jesus, please stay. Can I get to know you more? I've got a ton of questions for you. I'm going to need your help here. We certainly wouldn't fault him for that, for wanting to be with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus. But isn't it interesting that Jesus actually has other ideas? Jesus says no. And Mark doesn't tell us specifically why, so we can only speculate here. It's certainly not because Jesus is cruel or uncaring or harsh. I happen to think the reason is, is because of his mission, so that it's mission-driven, that is to say, Jesus knows that his primary mission is to the house of Israel and bringing back a Gentile, particularly one like this, on the boat would not seem wise. I don't even think they get near the shore because the disciples, we know enough about them to say, whoa, 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 well, just a minute, Jesus. We're not on board with this plan. 
What we are told here is that Jesus gives this transformed man a mission. Verse 19, go tell all your friends about how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Isn't that bizarre? Jesus gives this transformed man, the one he just radically changed, he, he actually gives them something to do. He, he's given him new life, and now he gives them, he gives him a, a new mission. Is there anyone that Jesus cannot use after he first changes their hearts? No. So that means you qualify. I qualify. We qualify. This formerly demonized man, naked, cutting himself, wanting to die, now has new life, and Jesus sends him out on a mission. It's interesting, isn't it? In previous accounts, when Jesus was in uh, ministering among the Jews and he would heal people or he would exercise demons, oftentimes, remember, he would say to that person, don't tell anybody. It was the messianic secret. Why? Because Jesus wanted to move freely and to continue to minister, and he knew that if the word got out, well, that would be a problem. But here, amidst Gentiles, Gentile people, Gentile cities, Jesus removes the restrictions, and he says, go, tell others about the mercy of the Lord for you. And that's exactly what this transformed man does. I love, at the, I love what we don't read here. And none of the gospel writers pick this up in the same scene. We don't read here, well, this, this transformed man heard Jesus say that, and then he, he said, let me get back to you, Jesus, because it's kind of been a, been a big day. Uh, I need to consider some things. I've got to take care of some matters at home. Let me get back to you on that. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what, Jesus, it seems like the wisdom thing here would be maybe, maybe for me to brush up on my apologetics. Or... Is there a class on how to share your faith if you formerly had demons inside of you? What does that look like? No, Jesus doesn't. I mean, this guy doesn't have a plan. Jesus says, go and tell how the, Lord, how the Lord's mercy has changed your life. And he does. That's it. That's his plan. I wonder when, when was the last time that you told someone about the mercy of the Lord for you. We need, we need to hear those stories, brothers and sisters. There is, I mean, I think this is where, where sometimes, sometimes newer believers in Christ, and some of you are those people, sometimes newer believers in Christ seem to have a little bit of an advantage here. That doesn't get older Christians like me off the hook. But sometimes newer disciples in Jesus have, they still have many friends and they have contacts and they have a network of relationships, people who knew them before and now they see this radical change and now they're saying, what is going on with that? I knew you'd be, who are you? And how can you, how do you point to that change? Tell the story. Tell the story of the Lord's great mercy for you. That's really the fruit of a transformed life. That's how the kingdom of God grows. It's actually how a local church like ours actually really begins to flourish. Let me tell you, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. 
Can I just share with you, here's how good the Lord has been to me. Tell them. Is there anybody in your life who really has no idea what Jesus has done for you? Tell them. So that they too can marvel. Not at you, but they can marvel at God. At his great grace. At his kindness. At his power. Tell them. The only way any of us are going to get a little bit more comfortable in telling others about what Jesus has actually done for us is to actually begin to tell others about what Jesus has done for us. Did God save your marriage from, the, from disaster? Did he save your marriage at the time when it was actually going off the cliff? Tell your friends. They need to hear that. Perhaps Jesus intervened in, in a moment of great need at exactly the right time, provided the, the right job or answered that specific prayer, gave you the right friend in your hour of greatest need. We need to tell others about that. Everybody needs to hear that. Have you forgotten the Lord's kindness to you in forgiving all of your sins, in, in adopting you as his own and giving you a pure heart, a clean heart, and yes, absolutely changing the course of your life. Have you forgotten how good God has been to you? Somebody you know or somebody you will meet this week needs to hear something of the Lord's great grace and mercy from you. Let's pray.